January of 2020, the Rolling Stones published an article by journalist Justin Noble. This is how the article opens. In 2014, a muscular, middle-aged Ohio man named Peter took a job trucking waste for the oil and gas industry. The hours were long. He was out the door by 3 a.m. every morning and not home until well after dark. But the steady $16 an hour pay was appealing, says Peter, who asked to use a pseudonym. This is a poverty area, he says, off his home in the state's rural southeast corner. Throw a little money at us, and by God, we'll jump and take it. In a squat rig fitted with a 5,000-gallon tank, Peter crisscrosses the expanse of farms and woods near the Ohio-West Virginia-Pennsylvania border, the heart of a region that produces close to a third of America's natural gas. He hauls a salty substance called brine, a naturally occurring waste product that gushes out of America's oil and gas wells to the tune of nearly one trillion gallons a year, enough to flood Manhattan, almost shin-high, every single day. At most wells, far more brine is produced than oil or gas, as much as ten times more. It collects in tanks, and like an oil and gas garbage man, Peter picks it up and hauls it off to treatment plants or injection wells, where it is disposed of by being shot back into the earth. The earth's crust is in fact peppered with radioactive elements that concentrate deep underground in oil and gas bearing layers. This radioactivity is often pulled to the surface when oil and gas is extracted, carried largely in the brine. In the popular imagination, radioactivity conjures images of nuclear meltdowns, but radiation is emitted from many common natural substances, usually presenting a fairly minor risk. Many industry representatives like to say that radioactivity in brine is so insignificant as to be on par with what would be found in a banana or a granite countertop. So when Peter demanded his supervisor tell him what he was being exposed to, his concerns were brushed off. The liquid in his tanks was no more radioactive than, quote, any room in your home, he was told. But Peter wasn't so sure. Quote, a lot of guys are coming up with cancer or sores or skin lesions that take months to heal, he says. Peter experiences regular headaches and nausea, numbness in his fingertips and face, and quote, joint pain like fire. He says he wasn't given any safety instructions on radioactivity. And while he is required to wear steel toe boots, safety glasses, a hard hat, and clothes with a flash-resistant coating, he isn't required to wear a respirator or a dosimeter to measure his radioactivity exposure. And the rest of the uniform hardly offers protection from brine. Quote, It's all over your hands and inside your boots and on the cuticles of your toes and any cuts you have. You are soaked, he says. So Peter started quietly taking samples of the brine he hauled, filling up old antifreeze containers and soda bottles. Eventually, he packed a shed in his backyard with more than 40 samples. He worried about further contamination, but says for him, quote, the damage is already done. He wanted answers. Quote, I cover my ass, he says, 10 
or 15 years down the road, if I get sick, I want to be able to prove this. Through a grassroots network of Ohio activists, Peter was able to transfer 11 samples of brine to the Center of Environmental Research and Education at Duquesne University, which had them tested in a lab at the University of Pittsburgh. The results were striking. Radium, typically the most abundant radionuclide in brine, is often measured in picocuries per liter of substance and is so dangerous it's subject to tight regulations even at hazardous waste sites. The most common isotopes are radium-226 and radium-228, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission requires industrial discharges to remain below 60 for each. Four of Peter's samples registered combined radium levels above 3,500, and one was more than 8,500. Quote, It's ridiculous that these drivers are not being told what's in their trucks, says John Stoltz, Duquesne's Environmental Center director. And this stuff is on every corner. It is in neighborhoods. Truckers don't know they're being exposed to radioactive waste, nor are they being provided with protective clothing. Breathing in this stuff and ingesting it are the worst types of exposure, Stoltz continues. You are irradiating your tissues from the inside out. The radioactive particles fired off by radium can be blocked by the skin, but radium readily attaches to dust, making it easy to accidentally inhale or ingest. Once inside the body, its insidious effects accumulate with each exposure. It is known as a bone seeker because it can be incorporated into the skeleton and cause bone cancers such as sacromas. It also decays into a series of other radioactive elements called daughters. The first one for radium-226 is radon, a radioactive gas and the second leading cause of lung cancer in the US. Radon has also been linked to chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Quote, every exposure results in an increased risk, says Ian Fairlie, a British radiation biologist. Quote, think of it like these guys have been given negative lottery tickets, and somewhere down the line their number will come up and they will die. Peter's samples are just a drop in the bucket. Oil fields across the country, from the Bakken in North Dakota to the Permian in Texas, have been found to produce brine that is highly radioactive. All oil field workers, says Fairlie, are radiation workers, but they don't necessarily know it. Tanks, filters, pumps, pipes, hoses, and trucks that brine touches can all become contaminated, with the radium building up into hardened scale. Concentrating to as high as 400,000 picocuries per gram. With fracking, which involves sending pressurized fluid deep underground to break up layers of shale, there is dirt and shattered rock, called drill cuttings, that can also be radioactive. But brine can be radioactive whether it comes from fracked or a conventional well. The levels vary depending on the geological formation, not drilling method. Colorado and Wyoming seem to have lower radioactive signatures, while the Marcellus Shale underlying Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and New York has tested the highest. Radium in its brine can average around 9,300 picocuries per liter, 
but it has been recorded as high as 28,500. Quote, if I had a beaker of that on my desk and accidentally dropped it on the floor, they would shut the place down, says Yuri Gorby, a microbiologist who spent 15 years studying radioactivity with the Department of Energy. Quote, and if I dumped it down the sink, I would go to jail. Welcome back to the show. As promised, these next couple of episodes will focus on the radioactive waste crisis caused by oil and gas industry. Similar to how fossil fuels harm the climate and damage our health by polluting our shared air, the fossil fuel industry also pollutes our water with highly toxic chemicals as part of the oil and gas production process. We will explore these dynamics in the next couple of episodes. First off, I'll interview Melissa Troutman. Melissa is a journalist, writer, editor, filmmaker, and vocal artist. She co-wrote an Earthworks report on oil and gas waste in Texas called Wasted in the Lone Star, and is currently executive director of the nonprofit investigative journalist organization, Public Herald. Here's my conversation with her. Welcome, Melissa, to this podcast. We're really excited to have you here to talk to us about oil and gas waste. Many people don't consider waste when we're talking about oil and gas, but as we're going to talk about, it's a very important component of this industry and its community impacts. Uh, so starting with the basics here, could you provide us with a brief summary of what oil and gas waste looks like. Sure. Yeah. And thank you, Miguel, for having me on. It's always good to chat with you. It's been a while. So thank you. And I cannot say that it's always good to talk about oil and gas waste, but, but very important <laughs> nonetheless. So what does oil and gas waste look like? Well, there's what oil and gas waste looks like, and then there's what it actually is, which is an important distinction because sometimes it looks benign, but it's not, right? And so I'll, I'll kind of break this up into two kinds of waste. One is the leftover materials from performing the job itself. So equipment like pipes and tanks and stuff like that. And then there's the waste material that is produced by the extraction process itself. Um, and that's the waste that does not exist until you drill or frack something, right? So let's start with the stuff that performs the job, mostly equipment like pipes, drills, and tanks. These are made out of metal or plastic that look like equipment you'd see at any kind of other industrial site, except that because they have oil and gas, especially shale oil and gas flowing through them or stored in them, they are not as benign as you might think. And then there's the waste produced from the job itself by the extraction process. And this is the waste that's produced in various forms from solid to liquid, uh, along with this kind of sludgy or muddy stuff in between. And that basically comes from when you drill into the earth, you create solid waste that comes from the rock and dirt from actually bringing it to the surface. That's pretty standard except because it's a part of oil and gas extraction, as opposed to something like geothermal or water well drilling, 
it involves going down miles into the earth, into places where there's heavy metals and radioactive material that's naturally occurring. And that's found in the bedrock. And that stuff comes back to the surface as part of the oil and gas extraction process. You also have to drill through aquifers, subterranean pockets of water. And at depth, they contain a lot of salts and other toxins, again, heavy metals and radioactive materials, just like the rock does. And this all comes up out of the well as liquid waste because it's mixed, it's mixed with, a, with fractured rock and also the drilling muds that are used to lubricate the drill bits. Okay. And those muds are often petroleum based and they can contain chemicals that just keep the whole operation running smoothly. Right. And then comes the fracking process. And this is where the majority of liquid waste is coming from. Each frack job requires millions of gallons of water. They mix chemicals and silica sand with it. And after it's forced down a well at incredibly high pressure, most of this liquid comes back to the surface as wastewater. Okay. And it looks like muddy water or sometimes it doesn't, it's not even that muddy and it kind of looks, but it, it looks like dirty water. Right. Right. And then finally the oil and gas, when oil and gas, um, waste is, is, is treated prior to disposal, which isn't often in Texas, it's, it's allowed to be spread on the land and dumped into rivers without treatment. But when it is treated for disposal, um, it's concentrate, the toxins are taken out and concentrated into sludges and those sludges then have to go some, they have to be disposed of too. And then there's actually one more type of oil and gas waste that is particularly dangerous. And so I want to talk about it by itself. And that is pipe scale. That is literally the buildup of radioactive scale inside of the pipes used at oil and gas facilities. And this is the stuff that has led to the biggest court cases on behalf of oil and gas workers who have developed cancer as a result of exposure to pipe scale and dust on the job. So that's a breakdown of the waste types and all of them, every single one can contain toxic levels of the contaminants like carcinogens, radioactive materials, heavy metals, hydrocarbons, and then of course the undisclosed secret fracking chemicals that companies still don't have to tell us about. Yikes. Well, thank you for that <laughs> breakdown. You said radioactive, which to many listeners is kind of, um, sounding some alarm bells because the public generally doesn't associate oil and gas with radioactivity. And we're going to go uh, deeper into how those two are connected. Um, but you mentioned that a huge part of this uh, waste that is unleashed, right, that is just chilling underground and we just kind of unleash it as part of the fracking process. Um, I mean, it, it seems like the advent of fracking as a process to extract oil and gas was a fundamental shift in the industry. Mm, um, so, so one might, th this might lead one to think that this change is reflected in waste policy and regulation. <laughs> so tell us, Melissa, how did the government's definition of quote, hazardous waste shift with the development of fracking? Well, it didn't. <laughs> so, Plot twist. 
<laughs> yeah. La, da, da, da. So the government's definition of hazardous waste hasn't changed for the oil and gas industry in decades, despite the freakish addition of modern fracking, which produces all this more waste, right? Um, exactly. So the way that this works is that the oil and gas industry has not had to comply with hazardous waste law since the 1980s. And that is when industry lobbyists managed to convince the feds that it was unnecessary and dun, 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 too expensive for them to apply hazardous waste rules to their hazardous waste. Amazing. So long story short, in 1988, the EPA finishes a study that Congress told it to do. And in their conclusion, which true to crony capitalism form, the EPA found that even though the oil and gas companies do create multiple streams of hazardous waste, that they don't have to follow federal hazardous regulations because it presented an economic burden. Now, let's just key in on economic burden for a second because, you know, if I was going to go dig a hole in the ground, put a bunch of stuff in there, bring a bunch of nasty stuff out and like, it would be my responsibility and a, just part of doing my business right. to properly manage that waste. So cost of business, not exactly like to properly deal with the waste that you generate during normal business practices is a cost of doing business. It's not an economic burden any more than anything else extraneous might be, but the industry has not had to pay this cost of doing business for over 30 years. Instead, that improperly managed waste and all of its hazardous risk is pushed off in the public in ways that are not at all transparent. Like you mentioned, most people don't know that oil and gas waste, the oil and gas industry, not just the waste, but the industry is radioactive. And a lot of people right. don't know that that's not an accident. So what happens is this stuff ends up in communities without people even knowing it. Because even though the feds said back when they exempted the industry in 1988 from federal hazardous waste law, the feds said, well, you know, this is actually a state issue and individual states do have the authority to create their own hazardous waste rules. And they do. But instead of creating hazardous waste rules for the oil and gas industry, the state just followed the federal lead and exempted the industry at the local level, which right. means that nowhere, this cre it created a nationwide exemption for the oil and gas industry. Nowhere in the United States has the industry had to comply by the same hazardous waste rules that everyone else does. And that, that loophole exists to this very day, except in New York state. New York is an okay. anomaly here because we finally got New York state to close its hazardous waste loophole for oil and gas in 2020. And there's also legislation proposed in Pennsylvania to close the hazardous waste loophole um, in Pennsylvania as well. But so far it's not gained, you know, the legislative support to make it law. Right. right. Because like Texas, Pennsylvania is a major oil and gas state. Pennsylvania is number two in the nation behind Texas for oil mm -hmm. and gas production. So, you know, that shows in the legislature. <laughs> you know, it's not. They're you know, paying every attention. 
Yeah, every election season, the campaign, the industry puts money all the way down both sides of the aisle. So exactly. Yeah. But I think it's important to note that because Texas is the largest oil and gas producer, they're also the biggest producer of the waste. Mm -hmm. And so the failure to apply hazardous waste law to the oil and gas industry is a bigger crime in Texas than anywhere else because everything's bigger in Texas, right? Unfortunately, sometimes that means increased probability of cancer, unfortunately, but no, yeah, it's, it's interesting that they, I mean, they, this isn't the only legislative space where the federal government basically says, oh, states do whatever you want. And that is, that translates to communities are suffering Uh, because as you mentioned, um, regulation the regulation of this waste is not the same in Pennsylvania and Texas uh, as compared to, I don't know, Rhode Island, right? Um, so can you tell us exactly how um, the public is forced with the burden of mm-hmm. paying for this cost of business? Sure. Um yeah, I mean, what a loophole really is, is an exemption for industry, but a, it, it, it's an exemption for industry to do regular practice, regular cost of business. Um, but it's more than just can about the company saving money. It's about who is actually forced to pay because somebody's always picking up the tab. And if exactly. it's not the industry, then it's obviously someone else. So who is it? Um, and it's, it's the public. It's always the public. So instead of keeping waste expenses inside the industry, governments have let industry shift that responsibility onto the public and therefore turned it into an actual burden because right. frontline communities bear that burden in the form of pollution and, and illness. And then the taxpayer bears that burden in the form of cleanup costs. Because when industry isn't made to properly deal with this toxic stuff when it's first created, the government ends up using our tax dollars to clean it up years later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, as we've been discussing, the industry wants us to not associate radioactive waste with oil and gas development. So that's what this podcast episode is about, Um, uncovering that. Uh, can you speak on on exactly how radio radioactive waste shows up in uh, this oil and gas extraction? Sure. So just like the industry knew for a very long time about its impact on the climate and then hid that, it has also done the same thing with the fact that it is a radioactive industry. So the presence of radioactive elements in oil and gas waste and in the industry as a whole, has been documented for decades by the industry itself, by government, and they've both repeatedly stated, despite the evidence, that the levels present are not of concern. So you have the science and then you have the PR, right? Sounds familiar. Yes, this is all the same playbook, right? Just over and over. So a lot of these A lot of this evidence, of course, has been unearthed by investigative journalists such as Justin Noble and then our team over at Public Herald. 
And what these investigations have revealed is that A, the industry has known about the real risks of radioactivity within its own industry for decades, and B, there is a direct link between radioactivity on the job and cancer in oil and gas workers. We all know this. We know this all to be true, okay? Right, right. In fact, in 1982, so how many years ago is that? 30, 40? Right. That's 40 years ago. Yeah, no, that's, that's, geez, a long time ago. 40 years ago, the American Petroleum Institute uh, commissioned a report. And that report found that, and I quote, almost all materials of interest and use in the petroleum industry contain measurable quantities of radionuclides that reside in processing equipment, product streams themselves in the actual oil and gas and in the waste. They also found that groundwater used for brine solutions for up for operating wells and such also contains significantly a significant quantities of radium 226 and radon 222 in particular. Now I want to talk about those two in particular. There are many types of radio nasty radioisotopes in oil and gas waste, but let's just Mm -hmm. talk about these two for a moment. So radium 226 is a cancer causing it's known to cause cancer in humans. Okay. Um, and it has a half-life of 1600 years, which means of course that when you put it somewhere, it stays there forever. Yeah. Unless, unless it's moved somehow. And where it's repeatedly applied, such as on roads or in fields or in landfills, it accumulates over that time and gets hotter and hotter. So let's take Texas landfills, for instance. In order for oil and gas waste to go to a municipal landfill in Texas, it cannot have any more than 30 picocuries per gram of radioactive material in it. So 30 is the magic number. And honestly, 30 is a decent number in terms of safety per load. But, okay. here's the pro- but here's the problem. They're not taking a single load and dumping it in a landfill. They're taking load after load after load after mm-hmm. load. Mm-hmm. And so what happens when you pile all of that at only 30 picocuries per load? What happens when you pile all of that up in the same place? It just sits there and accumulates because it, it doesn't break yeah. down. It has a right. half-life of 1,600 years, right? Right. Now, some landfills will have an annual threshold, okay, which means theoretically they can only take so much of a radioactive substance per year. But here's the other problem. (laughs) The testing in Texas in particular, the testing has very little and in some cases no actual oversight. So it's a number on paper, but but it doesn't translate to real life, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, It's not guaranteed anyway. And the regs Sound, all- sounds like uh, sounds like the the air pollution system, right? Where they they um, they fail to take all of these different pieces in the context of the whole. And um, mm-hmm. no, yeah, this similar like we we're talking how uh, the industry uses the same playbook. This is just reminding me of the government using their same playbook of just justifying uh, this waste in in a in something that might sound good on paper, but in reality on the ground is dangerous. 
That's absolutely right. And even on paper, Miguel, it's not, it's not enough. It's not strong enough. Right. Like right. for example, nowhere on paper does it say that regulators should look at the total number of sites that are positioned over a certain aquifer. Mm. I mean, even if you have an annual threshold at a particular landfill, what if there's three landfills over top of the aquifer? Exactly. Like, like exactly. you said, they, they are not assessing or regulating the cumulative effect of any of this shit, whether it's mm-hmm. waste or yeah. methane right. or, or anything. And to be honest, that is, I think that is by design. Oh, of course. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> but that that's probably a different podcast. Yeah, no. Um <laughs> it's yeah, it, it's like it's this perfect uh profit guaranteeing system for them, right? Mm. Um so um radium uh two two six sounds horrifying. How <laughs> about how about um radon two two two? Okay. Well, so radium 226 is, um, it's found in contaminated soil and water, water as well. Cause radium 226 is water soluble. So it makes okay. it into water radium 222 or rad. I'm sorry. Radon 222 mm-hmm. is a colorless odorless radioactive gas. Okay. So we're talking about air here, of course, or in water where it's trapped in water, but it's a radioactive gas. Um, and it has a half-life of almost four days, which doesn't sound like much until Mm -hmm. you're the person who's living next to the oil and gas facility. That's off gassing the stuff every few days. Right. Right. So Um, all of these things persist, these radioisotopes persist in the human body. They collect in tissue and bone and they cause cancer. And to be clear, <laughs> you know, in Texas, waste is also buried on site. And so whether it's, whether even if waste is not buried on site, every oil and gas site, every well site, every compressor station, every pipeline, every single oil and gas state contains toxic materials so it's a waste site. Every single oil and gas site is a waste site, some of which can be quite radioactive. And so how do, again, how do we know these things? There are many studies and lawsuits, many of what many lawsuits are on behalf of oil and gas workers at this stage, um, who got cancer and other diseases from exposures on the job. There's a lot of studies about those living in close proximity to oil and gas sites, having a host of elevated diseases and illnesses. And a lot of these studies are cited in earthworks report on waste oil and gas waste management in Texas, Mm -hmm. which is called wasted in the lone star state. I co-authored this full disclosure, but, um, if you go, if anybody can go to that and see, go to the radioactivity section starts on page nine and get direct access to those, those studies themselves. Um, great report. Highly recommend yeah. to the listeners. Yeah. Um, so yikes. Um, this, this, this sounds really bad, especially, um, um, how, how it affects oil and gas workers as well. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, you mentioning that, um, every oil and gas site, um, is toxic is, is also, 
reminding me of the aerial view of the Permian Basin. If you drive over, um, if, if you fly over the Permian Basin, if you see even on Google oh, Maps, yeah. all of the acres and acres and acres of patches of, of oil and gas sites, it puts it into perspective that the climate is huge, huge um, point of concern. But once you add this element of waste consideration, it just mm-hmm. makes it so much worse. And it makes the conclusion very clear that we need to stop drilling. We need to stop producing off-ramp into cleaner forms of energy. Yeah, as if the climate crisis is not, the, the climate threat of oil and gas is not bad enough. The mm-hmm. the legacy pollution, I mean, as we're, especially frontline communities are dealing with the climate impacts and the immediate exposure impacts, we're all, in, especially frontline and fenceline communities going to be dealing with the legacy pollution. And exactly the, you know, ma- a big part of which is the radioactivity, which persists. It's a, for, you know, people talk about the PFAS chemicals being pre- forever chemicals. That's what radium is. That's what radium 226 is. And it's, it's right. at every single oil and gas site that ever existed. So can you tell us about um, how the Texas Railroad Commission mm. responds to all of this? Um, <laughs> what, what, do we, what do they think? Um, well, I can tell you after writing this report wasted in the Lone Star State, I was actually not that familiar with regulations in Texas until I wrote that report. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was familiar, of course, with the regulations in other states and at the net na- in the national paradigm, which is that the industry be exempt and poorly tracked and that regulators are in bed with companies and there's a revolving door between the two, right? Um, But the Texas Railroad Commission in particular is atrocious when it comes to accountability. Um, And here's a good example, okay? So in, in, while I was writing Wasted in the Lone Star State, it just so happened that an industry insider contacted me and he was like, are you going to be writing about Texas? And I said, funny, you mentioned that I actually am. And he said, okay, well, you might want to know about this site in West Texas that is taking radioactive waste from the industry, but it's also not just taking waste from companies here in the U S it's importing radioactive oil field waste from other countries. And this is the first time I'd ever heard about this. Mm. So, okay. Um, what basically there's a site in West Texas, um, that was discovered to take in, they were taking oil field waste from Australia all the way from Australia. Okay. That when tested showed levels of radioactivity over 400 times, the legal limit for uranium mills, which make nuclear bomb fuel, <laughs> which as you know, is really bad and very radioactive. So 400 times over that legal limit for those places, that's what was, that's what's sitting in West Texas to this day. And um, the, the railroad commission knows about this. They've been out to inspect that site several times. And as 
And as far as I know, as of the report, which was written in April 2021, so just over a year ago, um, the Texas Railroad Commission had not found any violations at that facility, even though that industry insider sent me photos, which are published in the report. Yeah. Which are disgusting. I mean, the stuff is being held barely when it when it's not like the barrels aren't knocked over spilling on the ground. They're being held in really rusty, holy, um, disintegrated storage bins and that and they all have radioactive stickers on them, but they're clearly not in a state of. Proper know, management. Yeah, exactly. Yikes. So, well- we have Jeez. the visual evidence. We have the lab analysis, and still the the railroad commission says no violations. That says a lot about their priorities, um, and mm-hmm. how much they care about people's health. Uh, this is the um, Lotus LLC uh, yes. scenario, right? Yes. Awesome. So uh, we're going to talk in depth about that particular saga later on in, in the podcast um awesome uh before however before we get there i did want to ask you um a little bit more about the relationship between fracking and water usage so yeah how how does that look like is there um is it a lot of water is it not too much water. What are we looking at here? It's a lot of water. It's both a lot of fresh water that is permanently contaminated in order to, to extract oil and natural gas. And it's also a lot of wastewater. So you, in the oil and gas fields, you'll hear this term produced water. Produced water. Time. Hey, that it's sounds, produced water. sounds nice and benign and innocent. Yeah, it sounds perfectly. I mean, water. What do you think of when you hear the word water? It's like it's an awesome thing. Water is life, right? Produced. And if it's being produced, it's like, oh, it's like Nestle. They're making bottled water. No. Um, produced water is the term used to describe the really toxic, chemical laced, radioactive liquid waste that's produced from oil and gas extraction. And despite the fact that Texas produces more of it than anywhere else, Texas doesn't know how much it totally produces because they don't track it. Again, there's a theme here, right? Like nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So the total volume of oil and gas waste water is unknown. And when, cause when we asked the railroad commission for the total amounts, they didn't know. Uh, they said, well, volumes are reported on individual permits, but we don't add all that up, you know? So, okay. Why should um, they? They don't care. <laughs> but here's the, here's, here's where it gets easy for us, right? Because mm-hmm. what we do know is that Texas in Texas, um, about six barrels of liquid waste or wastewater is produced per barrel of oil. It's a six to one ratio. Wow. Yeah. So when you do like back back of the envelope map, which we did for the year of 2019, we found that in 2019 alone, Texas oil and gas companies produced over 26 million gallons of liquid wastewater every day. 
So what does that look like? That's like, that is 39 Olympic sized swimming pools of toxic wastewater every single day. So every fracked well requires millions and millions of gallons of water to frack. And most of that that's pumped down the hole ends up coming back up. So that's where all of this stuff is coming from, right? It's not all coming up from natural uh, water deposits underground. They are Mm -hmm. taking, they're taking water, pumping it down the hole, mixing with chemicals, and then most of it's coming back up and then it has to go somewhere. So before I ask you where that goes, uh, (laughs) I, I will, I will mention, so I, we're, we track the, the level of production, um, very, I mean, we, we track it, um, a lot and in the Permian alone, well, well, you mentioned that figure, which was from 2019. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, um, it's worse now because, uh, I mean, since 2019, it's the amount of oil and gas that's been produced uh, is increasing. Uh, and, the, and the Permian alone, uh, we're at 5 million, um, higher than Trump levels. So just wow. to emphasize once again, that the more we produce oil and gas, the more of this toxic water we have to deal with. Um, so yeah, Melissa, can you let us know um, where where they put all of this? Sure. I think to add on to your last point though, it's important to recognize that even when fracking stops, when they stop fracking new well, drilling and fracking new wells, the wells that already exist still produce this waste for decades. Mm -hmm, It mm -hmm. still slowly comes up throughout the life of a well. And so if we ban fracking tomorrow, we still have to deal with the waste issue as a manner of transitioning to a different, a different system. Right. So, um, where does it go? Well, it goes a lot of places in Texas. You can discharge it to a stream, you can spread it over land, and you can inject it underground. Now, in the industry, to be fair, the industry does reuse a, f- a fraction of its liquid waste for more fracking, but it still has to add fresh water to that in order to get it to a solution that they can use. So right. um, a huge amount of Texas's waste gets injected underground. So when, and when an injection well, Texas has a ton of injection wells. Um, and it's the preferred method of dealing with the liquid waste in particular. Um, but injection wells can leak and when they leak underground, it contaminates underground, it contaminates the soil and it contaminates any nearby groundwater supplies. And then of course, water moves through the ground. So the contamination can be taken away from the site via groundwater movement. Um, And of course, when when an injection well blows at the surface, um, it sprays and spills it everywhere. Um, And when the earth you're pumping it into doesn't hold that material like you think it's going to, it can also create seismic activity. And the increase in earthquakes across some parts of Texas have been linked to oil and gas waste disposal at injection well sites. 
Well, well, just just to add to that, um, the, the day before this interview, yesterday, June first, twenty twenty two, there were five earthquakes in one day in the Permian Basin. Ugh. Two of them were over four point oh, and oh my uh, gosh, yes, and, and so this is a, uh, it's kind of like a vicious cycle, isn't it? Like the more you inject, uh, the more it, it increases seismic activity, the more um, it creates, it poses a harm for, for our water sources. Um, so and they're running it. They're running out of, they've been running out of injection well capacity for years. They have way more waste than they have places to put it. And yet they, the, the, the state still issues more and more new permits, despite the fact that they don't have the capacity in place to deal with the waste on the other side of it. Mm. Well, um, we've we've talked about how uh, Texas is particularly horrifying, particularly egregious. Um, uh, to round out this this interview, Melissa, can you mm-hmm. tell us about um, aquifers? How yeah, is how yeah. is Texas specifically and especially horrifying when it comes to aquifers? Right. So another aspect of oil and gas waste that's unique to Texas, in addition to the fact that Texas is the biggest, um, is the number of groundwater aquifers that companies are allowed to inject their waste into in Texas. So companies are actually allowed to pump their toxic and radioactive waste into groundwater aquifers. And once they do... Yeah, right. <laughs> Mind-blowing, especially in the in 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 the Southwest, especially in the area that uh, is drought-ridden. I mean, it's yeah. Yeah, pausing why? there for a second to appreciate how ridiculous that is. Yes, as that region in particular struggles with water supply, poor things like drinking or irrigation for Mm -hmm. agriculture, Mm -hmm. why is the industry still allowed to intentionally poison groundwater aquifers? It is absolute neurosis. It's insanity. Yeah, no, geez. And so in Texas there, and once you, once you pump it in, it's done, it's poisoned, right? In Texas, there are over, now this is years, this is this is me running the numbers uh, four years ago now. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, or I'm sorry, one year ago, but the data f- that I ran was actually old data mm-hmm. because they don't update it very often. So, in Texas, there are over at least 2,800 groundwater aquifers that are used for oil and gas waste disposal. And of course, that's more than any other state in the nation because everything's bigger in Texas. But think about that for a second. Over 2,800 groundwater aquifers that can never be used because we've dumped oil and gas poison down into them. And like you said, this is this is not like a, an industry accident that they wish could have avo- they wish they could have avoided. No, they're intentionally doing this as in this their minds a legitimate yeah. practice. Except when it's illegal, which I'll tell you another little story. So 
Um, there was a 2016 investigation that revealed that the Railroad Commission didn't even know where all these exempt aquifers were. They didn't even know all the places oil and gas was pumping poison into aquifers. Okay. And so that's bad. Not, not great railroad commission, like maybe do your job a little better, but another report in 2017 showed that Texas regulators, when, even when they knew about these operations, Mm -hmm. they were letting oil and gas waste be injected into aquifers illegally without proper oversight. And that 2017 investigation found EPA found 54 aquifers but that's i mean they found 54 no, that yeah, were this is... injected into illegally that rrc right. did know about they yeah. just didn't require the company to go through the proper proper protocols but yeah it's there are there are a few things in the oil and gas industry that are more insane than that particular piece At the systemic level in the United States, corporations have constitutional rights. And every time a community tries to say no, they are often sued by a corporation for for trying to protect themselves. And the corporation uses as its justification and legal standing, its constitutional right to do basically whatever the F it wants to do, right? So until the environmental uh, nonprofit world fo- uh, does something about the fact that that constitutional right to poison us exists. We're going to be running a hamster wheel and we're never, I mean, they're always going to win. They're always going to win on a constitutional argument. Thanks for listening. On our next episode, we will continue our conversation about oil and gas radioactive waste with Justin Noble. He is an investigative journalist who has covered this topic at length and is continuing to expose these industry secrets to the public. He authored the Rolling Stones piece I read at the beginning of the episode. Stay tuned and see you soon.